You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. April 4th this year marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In that time, King's message has not lost resonance or relevance to the divisions we face as a society along racial and economic lines. But that message has also been co-opted. Politicians, political commentators, corporations— and groups of all ideologies have used King's words under their own brands. The most recent example that sparked a national conversation came during the Super Bowl in an ad for Ram trucks. That speech Dodge used is called the drum major instinct. What the ad didn't include were parts of the speech that denounced consumerism, including a specific criticism about buying new cars to one-up your neighbors. Is it okay to use King's words as part of a sales pitch for trucks or even to help brand your political organization? What would Martin Luther King have said about these things if he were alive today? Our next guest is especially qualified to answer some of those questions. Claiborne Carson is a professor of history at Stanford University. He is director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute and director of the Martin Luther King Papers Project, which is a long-term project to edit and publish King's papers. Uh, Dr. Carson will give a lecture today at the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit at 6 p.m. It is free and open to the public. Dr. Carson, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Yeah. So let's first start with uh, this this Super Bowl ad, which we've talked about on this show a few times uh, already. I'm curious what your reaction as somebody who's such an expert on Dr. King's work and his words, what was your reaction to that commercial when you saw it? Well, I think it's unfortunate when um, Martin Luther King's message was commercialized, um, because as you point out, uh, that was uh, the opposite of what he, he believed. Uh, he was very uh, critical of, of any kind of consumerist um, uh, kind of thought, and he, I think he was always uh, concerned that his words be used to make the world better, and not to make any particular company better, but the world as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet we see these kinds of co-optings, I guess, of, of King's words, not infrequently, right? Uh, uh, it, and it's not just uh, advertisers, I feel, um, uh, a lot of people use his words uh, frequently, and they use them in ways that might not be consistent with the way he intended them to be used, or or he might have been thinking when he when he spoke. Well, I think you can't prevent all of that. I mean, you know, not everyone has the same interpretation of of the words. Uh, I think that uh, even even using Martin Luther King in a commercial, you know, if the purpose is to honor. Dr. King, and not sell a product, then I think it's it's more tolerable. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have um, opportunities to have thirty seconds or sixty seconds of someone's time, and if you choose to use it and as kind of a contribution to King's legacy, then um, I, I'm not as critical. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's the problem is that we don't have any control over. 
intellectual property is bought and sold. Right. Right. Uh, so that's that's the basic issue. Yeah. Uh, talk about your specific scholarship and the kind of light it sheds for you on who King was and what his message was uh, and maybe how different that is from the way people believe uh, he thought and spoke today. Well, I, I think the purpose of doing the um, King Papers Project has always been to... Uh, provide solid information. I mean, we go to great lengths to make sure that our transcripts of King's speeches and sermons are accurate, that we find all of the various documents uh, that represent his life, and uh, try to make those available to everyone interested in in King, uh, just the same way you would any important historical figure. Uh, So I I think that uh, uh, the idea is to make the right information, the accurate information, um, as widely available as, as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and given all of that scholarship and given uh, your attention to uh, excavating that and, and helping to share it with the world, talk about how you think that helps us think of civil rights today. Uh, how, put Dr. King's message in the context of of today, of Black Lives Matter, for instance, uh, which I think in many ways is is a call back to some of the things that uh, that he believed in and was working on? Well, I think it makes us aware that he was more than simply a civil rights leader. Mm-hmm. You know, his civil rights agenda was pretty well accomplished by 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. So if he had simply been a civil rights leader, he would have retired. <laughs> uh, he would have said, I did a good job and, and got this legislation passed and went back to uh, being a private citizen and, and uh, uh, minister at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, but I think that what drove him, um, even before he became a civil rights leader, and I attribute that to Rosa Parks in Montgomery, uh, he was committed to what he called the social gospel. And uh, that was kind of outlined in a, in a letter he wrote to Coretto in 1952, in which he said that uh, he would devote his ministry to uh, achieving a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcended race or color. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a pretty broad agenda. <laughs> it doesn't mention civil rights. Right, right. But I think that's what he was doing uh, 16 years later. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that that's the main thing is to understand that that um, for him the civil rights uh, reforms of the 1960s were just uh, part of his overall uh, agenda. And he wrote a book in '67 called uh, "Where Do We Go From Here?" Right. Right. And that book laid out at another agenda, which we still haven't achieved. So I don't think you've yet, we've answered his question. And and uh, talk about the relationship, though, between that civil rights agenda and those later agendas, right? Uh, uh, the economic agenda, the Poor People's Campaign, uh, the, uh, the anti-war work that he did. My sense is that these things in his mind <clears throat> were all part and parcel of the same moral agenda. Yeah, that's, that's my point, is that he was talking about a warless world 
1952. Mm-hmm. So, of course, in 1967, with the Vietnam War going on, he would see that as part of his agenda. Uh, he was talking about a better distribution of, of wealth. So the Poor People's Campaign made uh, a great deal of sense for him. And I think rather than being surprised that he was involved in these efforts, um, anyone who understood him, in fact, he says that in his Riverside speech, um, when people criticized him, how, how is it that you as a civil rights leader are taking a stand on the Vietnam War? And he said, well, you haven't really been listening to me. Right. Uh, this is, of course, my, my goal as a uh, minister dedicated to the social gospel. Um, this is, of course, my goal as someone dedicated to uh, ending violence in all of its forms. So, uh, so I think when we understand him, we, we see that his life is consistent. It's consistent with his moral principles. Right. Right. Um, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dr. Claiborne Carson, a professor of history at Stanford University. He is director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, also director of the Martin Luther King Papers Project, a long-term project to edit and publish King's papers. He's going to give a lecture today at the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit at 6 p.m. It's free and open to the public. Uh, Dr. Carson, I want to ask you also about the march on Washington when King gave his I Have a Dream speech. I understand you were there for the march. Yes, I was. And uh, it was uh, one of those events that I think uh, changed the course of my life. I was only 19 at the time, and... uh, and I think it had a great impact on me. It was when I met, um, right before the march, I met Stokely Carmichael. And uh, a few months later, I met Bob Bosis, who had initiated the voting rights uh, um, project at, in the Delta of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these people were role models for me. They, they uh, inspired me at that age. Um, talk about that day. Too and and what you feel might have been going through people's minds at that point about uh, the, the the potential success of the movement. I mean, obviously, it's this this record gathering of people uh, on the Mall in Washington for the cause of civil rights, but it's before some of the more important legislative victories. Was there a sense uh, that that those victories were 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 near uh, on that day, or was there a sense that this might be a longer, harder road. I, I think it was, you know, as I remember, it was hard to predict what the outcome was going to be because all of us did not know what to expect, even at the march. Uh, we didn't know that it would be the largest uh, demonstration to that point to mm-hmm. take place in, in Washington. Um, we didn't know that uh, we were listening to the I Have a Dream speech. It didn't have a title. Uh, we didn't know it was going to become famous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of that was was something that uh, I think the main thing is we wanted to be there. And uh, when, because a lot of people wanted to be there, it was a successful event that uh, that we still remember today. And uh, you know, I. I think that it was the culmination of the mobilization of people all over the country. 
You know, there, uh, 1963 was a, a year of mass demonstrations, not just in the South, but uh, in Detroit, in, in Chicago, in, in New York, in San Francisco. Uh-huh. You know, there were people demonstrating to end discrimination and segregation. So, uh, so I think that the the march was the the um, I guess the the symbol of that uh, because it it brought together all those people at the nation's capital and and showed the nation that there was a demand for change. Um, showed the Kennedy administration that there was a widespread demand. Mm-hmm. So I I think that uh, it was one of those turning points in history. Yeah. And just like the Sullivan to Montgomery march uh, that symbolized the demand for change. Yes, yes. I think we might be seeing that uh, this week, you know, in, in, in Florida, you know, with the, it seems to have sparked a, a similar calls for change throughout yeah. the nation. Do, do you see echoes of Dr. King and uh, the things that he did in uh, modern movements, uh, like I said, Black Lives Matter earlier, or this movement that seems to now be cropping up in Florida among young people uh, about about guns. Are those are those direct echoes from from King himself? I, I think they're echoes of something that is deeply rooted in American history, and that is the need to protest for change. Mm-hmm. It is something that. Uh, I, I think it's it's the one characteristic that flows through all of American history, from uh, the Boston um, massacre, you know, when people were were killed demonstrating, um, and the American Revolution itself, uh, the anti-slavery movement, you know, the the movement for women's suffrage. You know, we have a history of protesting for change. And uh, I would hope that that doesn't end and that some generation says we don't want to inherit that legacy. Um, So I think that it's broader than simply Dr. King. He symbolizes something larger. If if it hadn't been for Rosa Parks and the women in Montgomery who organized the bus boycott, which was a protest, we wouldn't be talking about Martin Luther King today. Right. You know, that Rosa Parks made him possible, made it him possible in the sense that uh, he would have been a talented uh, preacher, but he would not have been a national holiday if not for Rosa Parks, who provided him with a platform um, to uh, express his views at and make people aware that there was this preacher who had a vision for the future. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so I think that the idea that uh, we we have movements that produce leaders, not the way the other way around. It's not that one person can just say, I'm going to start this movement. That rarely works. What more often happens is that ordinary people start movements, and out of those movements, emerge leaders. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dr. Claiborne Carson, a professor of history at Stanford University, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, also director of the Martin Luther King Papers Project, a long-term project to edit and publish King's papers. He is giving a lecture today at the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit at 6 p.m. It is free and open to the public. Uh, Dr. Carson, I also want to ask you about that day that Dr. King was assassinated. Where were you when it happened, and uh, how do you reflect back on it today? I was at my parents' home in, in New Mexico, and uh, I had just, uh, my wife and I had, had been um, living abroad for a while, from 1967 to 1968, in part to avoid the draft. Um, so I, I think coming back right on the eve of the assassination had a particular impact uh, on me in the sense that it symbolized how much the nation was changing during that time. 67, 68 was a very tumultuous period in American history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it happened that uh, we went back to Los Angeles um, and were there when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Oh, wow. So it, it, it was a, a year that showed how much had changed since we had left the United States and um, how much I think the nation was coming apart in various ways. I don't think we've healed the wounds of that of that period, because uh, you know one thing that we did realize at the time was that it was uh, creating a political division that remains with us to this day. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether you whether you see echoes of that time in this time, the discord of '68, '69. Are we uh, repeating some of that in? you know, 2016 and 2018? Well, I think the discord is a result of, you know, discords don't come out of out of nothing. It's not like someone uh, creates discord by protesting. Yes. I think there are problems that protests draw attention to. And, uh, and I think that we've ignored problems such as poverty, such as the um, militarization of our society, uh, such as the militarization, particularly of the police. You know, that started uh, during that time. There, there wasn't something called a SWAT team before the late 1960s. There wasn't a... There probably was, were not police forces that even had uh, military-style weapons, uh-huh. much less civilians having them. Uh, so a lot of the the uh, problems that we see today have their roots there. The political division, uh, in 1964, Lyndon Johnson won a, a landslide victory. The majority of white Americans and the majority, majority of black Americans voted for him. That hasn't happened in the 13th elections since then. Right, right. Um, yeah, so you have this, you know, if, if only white Americans voted, we would have had 13 consecutive 
Republican presidents. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, so I think that that's a, a major divide in our society, and uh, and I, I I think we shouldn't just uh, be um, disturbed by the divide, but the reasons for the divide, and those are are deeply rooted. Also, they're they're rooted in uh, segregation. Yes, they're rooted in poverty, and they're rooted in in our uh, concentration on military spending, and uh, as I said, the militariz- militarization of of our society in so many ways, so that uh, war is, is seems like we're in a perpetual war. You know, when when will the war on terror end? Right. You know, it, it's uh, in my view, you can't defeat it down. And terrorism has been around since uh, the <laughs> beginning of recorded history. Right. Uh, right. So I think conducting, you could conduct a war against specific groups, but um, but you know, we we have become accustomed to the fact that a huge part of our nas- national resources and energy goes into war rather than healing our own society. Wow. And uh, that's a problem that Martin Luther King was very much aware and warned us against. Dr. Claiborne Carson, professor of history at Stanford University, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, also director of the Martin Luther King Papers Project. Thank you for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. And remember, you can go see Dr. Claiborne Carson tonight at the Charles H. Wright African American Museum, 6 p.m. It is free and open to the public. That's going to do it for us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our associate producers are Gus Navarro and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. Remember, if you missed any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation we had here on Detroit Today. You can go to iTunes and subscribe and download uh, Detroit Today or wherever you download podcasts. You can take us with you and listen when you are ready. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.